So in this series called Test, Trust, and Triumph, Joe has given me the simple and thoroughly uncontroversial books of Joshua and Judges. This is the first time that I have, in fact, addressed the book of Judges in 12 years almost, in part because the last time I did it almost got me fired. Really, yeah, (laughs) for real. Um, You know, Joshua and Judges uh, are what what we know as the conquest narrative. It's the story of the people of Israel between the Exodus and the monarchy, between when they leave, uh, leave Egypt and wander around in the desert and when the, we, we start having the, uh, the era of the kings. And it, it's not a terribly happy story. Uh, in a lot of ways, uh, the, the closing verse of Judges kind of uh, caps off the way that the historian who put these books together sees that era. He says, in those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as he saw fit. Now, as you see, if you keep going, and Kendall, I'm sure, will talk about this next week, in the time of the kings, everyone also did as they saw fit, including and especially the kings themselves. Uh, But what we have here in Joshua and Judges is the story of what happens when people do as they see fit. And the sort of the controlling narrative for this, the controlling paradigm for this narrative gets, gets given to us actually in Deuteronomy in chapter 7. This is uh, Moses speaking to the people as they're about to enter the promised land. So they've, they've escaped from Egypt. They are, uh, they've received the Torah on Sinai. They have wandered around in the desert. And they're about to go into the promised land. Moses says, when Yahweh your God brings you into the land that you're entering to possess, and he drives out before you many nations, the Hittites, Girgashites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites, seven nations larger and stronger than you. And when Yahweh your God has delivered them over to you and you've defeated them, then you must destroy them utterly. Make no treaty with them. Show them no mercy. Do not intermarry with them. Do not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons, for they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods. And Yahweh's anger will burn against you and will quickly destroy you. So this is what you are to do. Break down their altars. Smash their sacred stones. Cut down their Asherah poles and burn their idols in the fire. For you are a people holy to Yahweh your God. Yahweh your God has chosen you out of all the peoples on the face of the earth to be his people, his treasured possession. Now, just so we're clear, Yahweh did not set his affection on you. He did not choose you because you were more numerous or greater than other people's. In fact, you were the fewest of all peoples. But it was because Yahweh loved you and kept the oath he swore to your forefathers that he brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the land of slavery, from the power 
of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. There was nothing about you, Moses is saying on God's behalf, there is nothing about you that makes you special. You are not a brilliant, beautiful little snowflake. You are not impressively strong and powerful. In fact, you are exactly the last person anybody would expect God to use. Know, therefore, that Yahweh your God is God. He is the faithful God, keeping His covenant of love to a thousand generations of those who love Him and keep His commands. But those who hate Him, He will repay to their face by destruction. He will not be slow to repay to their face those who hate Him. Therefore, take care to follow the commands, decrees, and laws I give you today. If you pay attention to these laws, and if you're careful to follow them, then Yahweh your God will keep his covenant of love with you as he swore to your forefathers. He'll love you and bless you and increase your numbers. He'll bless the fruit of your womb, the crops of your land, your grain, new wine and oil, the calves of your herds, and the lambs of your flocks and the land that he swore to your forefathers to give you. You'll be blessed more than any other people. None of your men or women will be childless, nor any of your livestock without young. Yahweh will keep you free from every disease. He won't inflict on you the horrible diseases you knew in Egypt, but he will inflict them on all who hate you. You must destroy the peoples Yahweh your God gives over to you. Do not look on them with pity and do not serve their gods, for that will be a snare to you. Now, you may say to yourselves, well, these nations are stronger than we are. How can we drive them out? But don't be afraid of them. Remember well what Yahweh your God did to Pharaoh and to all Egypt, the world's leading superpower of the time. You saw with your own eyes the great trials, the miraculous signs and wonders, the mighty hand and outstretched arm with which Yahweh your God brought you out. Yahweh your God will do the same to all the peoples you now fear. Moreover, Yahweh your God will send the hornet among them until even the survivors who hide from you have perished. Don't be terrified by them. For Yahweh your God, who is among you, is a great and awesome God. Yahweh your God will drive out those nations before you little by little. You won't be allowed to eliminate them all at once, or the wild animals would multiply around you. But Yahweh your God will deliver them over to you, throwing them into great confusion until they're destroyed. He'll give their kings into your hand, and you'll wipe out their names from under heaven. No one will be able to stand up against you. You will destroy them. The images of their gods you are to burn in the fire. Do not covet the silver and gold on them, and do not take it for yourselves, or you will be ensnared by it, for it is detestable to Yahweh your God. Do not bring a detestable thing into your house, or you, like it, will be set apart for destruction." Utterly abhor and detest it, for it is set apart for destruction. Is there anything about these instructions that is confusing? Is there anything about these instructions that is ambiguous? Anything unclear? Do we have a nuanced understanding of interfaith relations in this passage? No. God has promised his people a, a land 
a place that they are to occupy, a place where they are to live, where He will make them prosperous, where He will make them healthy, where He will multiply them in accordance with His faithfulness to the promise that He made to the patriarchs, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. They have a clear mandate. And so, in the book of Joshua, we find the people tested. You remember the story of Jericho? Joshua is commanded by this mysterious commander of the armies of the Lord who tells him what he is to do. We're marching around the walls of Jericho while the inhabitants throw slushies down on them and blow the horn and the walls come tumbling down. And then we read at the end of Joshua chapter 6, then they burned the whole city and everything in it, but they put the silver and gold, the articles of bronze and iron into the treasury of Yahweh's house. That all this they're supposed to do, right? Good. But, we read the beginning of chapter 7, but the Israelites acted unfaithfully in regard to those devoted things, the things that were to be handed over. Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zimri, the son of Zerah of the tribe of Judah took some of those devoted things. So Yahweh's anger burned against Israel. So when Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is near Beth-Avon in the east of Bethel, and told them, go on up and, and scout out the region, the men went up and they spied out Ai and they returned to Joshua and said, eh, we're not all going to have to go up there. It's, you know, we'll send two or 3,000 guys to take it. Don't weary all the people. There really aren't a whole lot of folks there. We should be able to take them, no sweat. So about 3,000 men went up, but... They were routed by the men of Ai and killed about 36 of them. So they chased the Israelites from the city gate as far as the stone quarries and struck them down on the slopes. And at this, the hearts of the people melted and became like water. So then Joshua tore his clothes. He fell face down to the ground before the ark of Yahweh, remaining there till evening, the Elders of Israel did the same. They sprinkled dust on their heads. And Joshua said, Oh, Lord Yahweh, why did you ever bring this people across the Jordan to deliver us into the hands of the Amorites, to destroy us? If only we had been content to stay on the other side of the Jordan. Lord, what can I say now that Israel has been routed by its enemies? The the Canaanites and the other people of the country are going to hear about this. And they're going to surround us and wipe out our name from the earth. What will you do for your own great name? In other words, Joshua was saying, God, you're, you're not coming through on what you promised. I mean, you said you were going to fight for us. You said that we were going to win all these battles. You said you were going to drive out these nations before us. And we just went up and we just got our butts kicked. That's going to look bad for you. This is going to ruin your rep. What will you do for your great name? And Yahweh said to Joshua, stand up. What are you doing down on your face? Israel sinned. They violated my covenant. 
which I commanded them to keep, they took some of the devoted things. They've stolen, they've lied, they've put them with their own possessions. And that's why the Israelites can't stand against their enemies. They turn their backs and run because they've been made liable to destruction. I'm not going to be with you anymore unless you destroy whatever among you is devoted to destruction. So go consecrate the people. Tell them, consecrate yourselves in preparation for tomorrow. For this is what Yahweh, the God of Israel, says. That which is devoted is among you, O Israel. That which was supposed to be set apart, handed over, you've hung on to. And you can't stand against your enemies until you remove it. So in the morning, present yourselves tribe by tribe. The tribe that Yahweh takes shall come forward clan by clan. The clan that Yahweh takes shall come forward family by family. And the family Yahweh takes shall come forward man by man. And the one who is caught with the devoted things shall be destroyed by fire along with all that belongs to him. He's violated the covenant of Yahweh and he's done a disgraceful thing in Israel. So sure enough, early the next morning, Joshua had Israel come forward tribe by tribe and Judah was taken. And the clans of Judah came forward and he took the Zerahites and he had the clan of the Zerahites come forward by families, and Zimri was taken. And Joshua had Zimri's family come forward man by man, and Achan, the son of Carmi, son of Zimri, the son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, was taken. And Joshua said to Achan, My son, give glory to Yahweh, the God of Israel, and give him the praise. Tell me what you've done. Don't hide it from me. Achan replied, It's true. That's true. I have sinned against Yahweh, the God of Israel. Here's what I did. When I saw in the plunder of Jericho a beautiful robe from Babylonia, 200 shekels of silver and a wedge of gold weighing 50 shekels, I coveted them and I took them. They're hidden in the ground inside my tent with the silver underneath. Joshua sent messengers. They ran to the tent. There it was, hidden in his tent with the silver underneath. They took the things from the tent, brought them to Joshua and all the Israelites, and spread them out before Yahweh. Then Joshua, together with all Israel, took Achan, son of Zerah, the silver, the robe, the gold wedge, his sons and daughters, his cattle, donkeys, and sheep, his tent, and all that he had to the valley of Achor. Joshua said, why have you brought this trouble on us? Yahweh will bring trouble on you today. And then all Israel stoned him. And after they had stoned the rest, they burned them. Over Achan, they heaped up a large pile of rocks, which remains to this day. Then Yahweh turned from his fierce anger. Therefore, that place has been called the Valley of Achor, or trouble, ever since. A few things about this story are difficult, not least the fact that Achan and his entire family were punished. But the story is set up in verse 1, not as Achan acted unfaithfully in regard to the devoted things, but it says the Israelites acted unfaithfully in regard to the devoted things. Now, you could just look at this as an example of collective punishment. Achan's an Israelite. 
So if any Israelite is unfaithful, then in a sense all Israel is unfaithful. But I think when we read this text and we notice that Achan is identified not only by his father, but by his grandfather and by his great-grandfather and his tribe, maybe we wonder if the guilt didn't spread a little farther than just Achan. I mean, Achan didn't just grab a few coins. He grabbed five pounds of silver and more than a pound of gold and a robe from Babylon. Not easy to smuggle all of these things. And if he hid them in the dirt under his tent... It's hard to imagine that the people living in his tent didn't know what was going on. It's hard to imagine that the people living near his tent, who would have been his closest family, didn't know what was going on. It seems that there was a tolerance for unfaithfulness, a willingness to allow somebody to try to get by And God absolutely was not going to put up with that. God's people were tested. God's people were tested individually, but God's people were tested as a community. And they failed the test. Achan personally failed the test. Everybody who knew what Achan did, everybody who saw what Achan was doing and turned a blind eye, failed that test. And during that whole time when the lots were being cast and first Judah was selected and then the tribe of Zimri was selected, and the, the, I'm sorry, the, the, the clan of the Zerahites and then the family of Zimri, there would have been time in all of those processes for Achan to step up and say, yeah, I did it. Or for somebody who knew to push him forward. I guess all along there was hope that he was going to get away with it. There was a hope that maybe if God wasn't going to not see, at least he'd let it slide. The people were tested, and they failed the test. They failed to trust what God had promised them, right? I mean, the only reason that you take a robe from Babylon and some silver and some gold when you're not supposed to is that you think that's the only way you're going to get that stuff, right? If Achan was fully confident that God was going to provide for him and to prosper him and to give him uh, the good life in the land that he promised him, then Achan would have had no reason to steal these things. But, but he didn't trust that God had his best in mind. And so he failed the test. God's people, likewise, had the opportunity to trust that when God gave commands, he was serious about it. That when God called his people to be faithful as a whole, that that meant everybody, that that meant even if 
you were doing what you were supposed to do, that didn't mean you could turn a blind eye to your neighbor being unfaithful. They're called to trust that God really was doing a new thing, that God really was creating a new people that was going to be a, a nation of priests, a holy kingdom. They failed to trust that. Thankfully, they eventually did. And when it was clear what had happened and who had done it, then the people came forward and did as they were commanded. The people were tested and failed to test. The people at first failed to trust, but then once they did, then we read in chapter 8, God triumphs and I is destroyed. And we see this cycle happen time and again in the book of Judges, which, which is hard to read. I mean, at the beginning of uh, Judges chapter 2, in verse 6, we read that after Joshua had dismissed the Israelites, this is after they had, had come into the land, they all went to take possession of the land, the, each of the inheritance that they had, and the people served Yahweh throughout Joshua's lifetime and of the elders who outlived him and who had seen all the great things Yahweh had done in Israel. But Joshua, son of Nun, servant of Yahweh, died at the age of 110. They buried him in the land of his inheritance. And after that whole generation had been gathered to their fathers, another generation grew up. It was greater than the last. Another generation grew up and was faithful to God and to his command. Or not? No, it's not what the text says. The story reads, another generation grew up who knew neither Yahweh nor what he had done for Israel. And then the Israelites did evil in the eyes of Yahweh and served the Baalim, the false gods of their neighbors. They forsook Yahweh, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of Egypt Instead, they followed and worshipped the various gods of the peoples around them. They provoked Yahweh to anger because they forsook Him and served Baal and the Ashtoreths. In His anger against Israel, Yahweh handed them over to raiders who plundered them. He sold them to their enemies all around, whom they were no longer able to resist. Whenever Israel went out to fight, the hand of Yahweh was against them to defeat them just as he'd sworn to them. Remember, God had promised that his hand would be with them to defeat their enemies, right? But if they weren't going to treat him as he deserved to be treated, if they were going to follow after other gods, then his hand would be against them. And indeed it was. And because of that, they were in great distress. They failed to test. They failed to trust that God would take care of them. They put their confidence in other gods. They looked around and saw what their neighbors were doing, and they said, oh, that, that seems like that might work for us. Let's try that. So Yahweh raised up judges 
heroes who saved them out of the hands of these raiders, yet they wouldn't listen to them. They prostituted themselves to other gods and worshiped them. Unlike their fathers, they quickly turned from the way in which their fathers had walked, the way of obedience to Yahweh's commands. Whenever Yahweh raised up a judge for them, he was with the judge. He saved them out of the hands of their enemies as long as the judge lived. For Yahweh had compassion on them as they groaned under those who oppressed and afflicted them. But when the judge died, the people returned to ways even more corrupt than those of their fathers, following other gods and serving and worshiping them. They refused to give up their evil practices and stubborn ways. Therefore, Yahweh was very angry with Israel and said, Because this nation has violated the covenant that I laid down for their forefathers and has not listened to me, I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations Joshua left when he died. I'll use them to test Israel and to see whether they will keep the way of Yahweh and walk in it as their forefathers did. Yahweh had allowed these nations to remain. He didn't drive them out at once by giving them into the hands of Joshua. These are the nations Yahweh left to test all those Israelites who hadn't experienced any of the wars in Canaan. He did this only to teach warfare to the descendants of the Israelites who hadn't had previous battle experience, the five rulers of the Philistines, all the Canaanites, the Sidonians, the Hivites, living in the Lebanon mountains from Mount Baal Hermon to Lebo Hamath. They were left to test the Israelites to see whether they would obey Yahweh's commands, which he had given their forefathers through Moses. And the Israelites lived among the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. They took their daughters in marriage and gave their own daughters to their sons and served their gods. Does this list sound familiar? What's that at the beginning of Deuteronomy 7? When Yahweh your God brings you into the land you're entering to possess and drives out before you many nations, the Hittites, Girgashites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites, seven nations larger and stronger than you. And when Yahweh your God has delivered them over to you and you've defeated them, then you must treat, destroy them utterly. Make no treaty with them. Show them no mercy. Do not intermarry with them. Do not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons, for they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods, and Yahweh's anger will burn against you and will quickly destroy you. And what do we have here? The Israelites lived among the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. The Girgashites are off the stage, which may be good. They took their daughters in marriage, gave their own daughters to their sons, and served their gods. God's people were tested. They failed the test. But this story in Judges is that, yes, when the people cry out, when they realize the situation they've gotten themselves into, they cry out to God, and God provides a judge. He provides a hero, a judge is sort of a combination of a, of, of a governor and a general. He provides these people who lead Israel, defeat their enemies. For example, you have Ehud, one of my favorites, and, and proof that God loves teenage boys. 
I'm serious. This is the story of Ehud in Judges chapter 3. Once again, the Israelites did evil, verse 12, did evil in the eyes of Yahweh, which is basically like the start of every vignette in Judges. Once again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of Yahweh. Because they did this evil, Yahweh gave Eglon, the king of Moab, power over Israel. Moab is to the east of the land. Getting the Ammonites, the Amalekites to join him, Eglon came and attacked Israel, and they took possession of the city of Palms. Israelites were subject to Eglon, king of Moab, for 18 years. And again, the Israelites cried out to Yahweh, and he gave them a deliverer, Ehud, a left-handed man, the son of Gera the Benjamite. The Israelites sent him with tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Now, Ehud had made a double-edged sword about a foot and a half long, which he strapped to his right thigh under his clothing. He's tricky. He's crafty. He's left-handed. And implicitly, it means that, that he's, a, he's a sneaky sort. This is not a condemnation of all people who are left-handed uh, or a suggestion that all people who are left-handed are capable of doing what Ehud's about to do, which is pretty awesome. But the idea is this is not necessarily the kind of person you would expect to be raised up to do this. He's from the tribe of Benjamin, the smallest tribe, which the end of Judges nearly gets itself wiped out. But Ehud is sent to bring tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Are God's people supposed to be bringing tribute to foreign kings? No. Should the leaders of God's people be the one bringing tribute to foreign kings? No. Does this signify the position that God's people have gotten themselves in? Absolutely. And one of the things that I like so much about the story of Ehud is that this, the, the writer tells us he, he made this, this sword, a double-edged sword, evidently a, an advance in military technology, strapped it to his right thigh under his clothing. He was all ready for action. And what does he do? He presents the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. And though he chickened out, he got there, and instead of giving Eglon his sword, he gave him the tribute. Eglon, by the way, was a very fat man. Think Jabba the Hutt, but Near Eastern. So after Ehud had presented the tribute, he sent on their way the men who had carried it. So not only was Ehud demonstrating unfaithfulness by bringing this tribute to this foreign king, he's got a whole bunch of Israelites doing that with him. And at the idols near Gilgal, he turned himself back. Gilgal is on the west side of the Jordan, some distance from Moab. So Ehud had delivered his tribute and was on his way back home when finally he came to himself. He saw these idols. Are idols supposed to be in Gilgal? No. Gilgal is in the land, which is supposed to be God's, which is supposed to be utterly dedicated to him and to the worship of the one true God. There should not be any idols in this place. And Ehud gets there on his way home, and he sees these idols, and he realizes, 
I threw away my shot. So he himself turned back. Then he went back to Eglon and he said, I have a secret message for you, O king. The king said, quiet. And all his attendants left him. Now Eglon must not have been terribly afraid of Ehud if he was willing to dismiss everybody. Probably wasn't afraid of Israel. This was just one of many little peoples around him that were paying him protection money so that he wouldn't bother them. Ehud then approached the king when he was sitting alone in the upper room of his summer palace. Or it might not have actually been a summer palace. This might also have been his private chambers. And he said, I have a davar from God for you. Davar could be word or message. It could also be a thing. He says, I got something from God for you. And as the king rose from his seat, Ehud reached with his left hand, drew the sword from his right thigh, and plunged it into the king's belly. The handle sank in after the blade, and it came out the back. Now, if you have a polite translation of Scripture, it will say, the handle sank in after the blade which came out the back. But that's not what the Hebrew says. The Hebrew says, and it came out the back. More on this and why God loves teenage boys in a moment. So Ehud didn't pull the sword out. The fat closed over it. And then Ehud went out to the porch. And again, the meaning of the Hebrew for that word is uncertain. Shut the doors of that upper chamber behind him and locked them. And after he'd gone, the servants came and found the doors of that upper chamber locked. They said, oh, well, the king must be on the john. Now, why would they have said that? It could be because the doors were closed and locked. It could be that Eglon was a modest man who did not like to use the restroom with the door open. I think it is more likely, though, that they smelled something that gave them to believe that the king was relieving himself. Because when the Hebrew says, it came out the back, it does not necessarily mean the point of Ehud's sword came out the back. Quite likely, it means that Eglon let loose his bowels as he died. And then Ehud snuck out. While they waited, Ehud got away. Now, how would Ehud have gotten away if the king was in his upper chamber? Ehud would have gotten away through the plumbing. And how many action flicks involve somebody escaping through a sewer system? Now, 
Ehud is the ninja judge. Ehud sneaks in, does his business. Not only does he kill the king, he leaves him to die in the most humiliated state possible. And then he slips out through the sewer system. And then he passed by the idols, blew by him and escaped to Sarah. And when he arrived there, he blew a trumpet in the hill country of Ephraim, and the Israelites went down with him from the hills, with him leading them. Ehud was tested. And Ehud initially failed that test. He brought the tribute that he had no business bringing. But he came to those idols and he realized that he had failed the test. And so he turned himself around, chose to trust God rather than the security that comes with buying off somebody more powerful. And God triumphed in a most exquisitely awesome manner, worthy of any Marvel comic. This pattern gets repeated over and over and over again through the book of Judges in stories that get less and less polite and more and more disturbing. God's people are rescued. They're delivered. But then they get complacent. And they fail the test of faithfulness. They fail to trust God, and so they get themselves in trouble. And God saves them again and again. He sends a deliverer and he rescues them. And then they get in trouble again because they get complacent. They fail to trust him. And then finally they cry out to him and put their faith in him, and then he comes and rescues them. And I have to say, you know, at first when I encountered these stories, they would inspire me. I'd look at these stories of guys like Ehud, champions who go in and do the right thing. Gideon, the tuba warrior, stepping up with his ragtag army of 300 bozos. Samson pulling down the temple on the heads of the Philistines with his final breath. But then I realized, no, I mean, the awesome qualities of these stories are supposed to excite a teenage boy, and that's where I was when I first read them. But the more I read them, the more they just made me depressed. Over and over, God's people are tested, and they fail to test. They fail to trust God and His goodness to them and His faithfulness to them. They, they fail to live in a way that's consistent with the commandments He's given them. They fail to come through on the things God's called them to most of which involve them simply being faithful and trusting that he's going to do the hard work. You see plenty of that in these stories, too, where God's people win, not usually through an overwhelming show of force, but through force, but some means of trickery that enables God to destroy their enemies. So it used to just make me depressed. It used to make me think, gosh, what's so wrong about us. It, couldn't there be some time when, when God's people could just be faithful 
Why do we keep falling into this cycle of, of failing the test, of failing to trust God? Why is it that we never come to God until we get to the end of our rope? Why is it that He keeps having to send somebody to rescue us? Can't we do better? But now when I read these stories, they're a comfort to me. Because ultimately, despite God's people failing the test, God's people failing to trust, God never proves Himself unworthy of their trust, does He? And God never fails to triumph when He decides to act, to deliver His people. In this test to trust, trust and triumph cycle, God's people fail the test, they fail to trust, but when they do trust, then God does triumph. God does win the victory. And whether it be the history of God's people, whether it be our own struggles with the sin that besets and so easily entangles us, we're reminded when we do things like confess and ask God for forgiveness that He is always ready to triumph, that He is always ready to deliver those who trust in Him, that the worst thing we can do is to continue trying to pass a test that we've already failed. Now, the only thing we can do once we've done that is to throw ourselves on His mercy. And thanks be to God, He is always ready to grant it. And to show Himself mighty in the lives of His people. Not because His people are anything special. Not because we're all that great. In fact, God picks the least likely of heroes. But he does that specifically so that he can demonstrate that he is God and none other. And that whatever deliverance, whatever salvation, whatever rescue we experience at his hand is strictly because of his faithfulness, not anything that we've done. All we do, and really it's not doing anything, is like Ehud to turn ourselves back. And so, these stories do inspire me in a different way. It's not like they inspire a young boy ready to go and take up the battle, but they inspire me as somebody who sees that God is going to work His purposes out. not only through His people, but in many ways in spite of His people. God's faithful like that. He's good to us. He's always rich in mercy. And ultimately, He always triumphs. Will you pray with me?
Lord God, we pray that you would make us people who are aware of how thoroughly we fail the test, that you would show us clearly and without any ambiguity where we have failed to trust, where our lives have betrayed our claims of loyalty, where we've demonstrated ourselves to be faithless. Show us those places and give us the grace to see them and like Ehud to turn ourselves around, to turn back to you, the God and Father of us all. Knowing that when we do, when we do finally trust in you, when we do respond in faith to you, that you will triumph, that you will show yourself mighty in our lives and in the lives of your people. We pray that as we do your work, as we partner with you here in this outpost at 200 Ingleside, that we would be faithful to be cooperative with you in the work of furthering the incursion of your kingdom into enemy territory. And all this we ask in the name of our mighty champion, Jesus Christ. Amen.